Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. When Madeleine Miller published Circe, it heralded the start of a new wave of feminist retellings in which writers visited well-known classics in order to tell the stories of those excluded from the dominant narrative. Now, the popularity of mythological retellings is at an all-time high and bookshops are flooded with tales of heroic women reclaiming their stories. But these stories are still so very white so very Western. Publishing is ever ravenous for Greek myths, despite so little of it being written by actual Greeks. Are we falling into the same trap yet again? Where are the non-Western myths? Where are the authors of colour? When reimagined myth is at its most popular, why are we still only reading about Greece? Joining us tonight is Vaishnavi Patel, whose retelling of the Ramayana centres the myth's evil stepmother, Kaiki. Is that okay? Kaiki. Kaiki. Instead of its traditional hero, Rama. I am going to be embarrassing myself appallingly throughout this entire episode. So, (laughs) Um, But we have you here to give us all your beautiful, correct pronunciations. Um, So if you'd like to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, and no worries on the pronunciation. Um, my name is Vaishnavi Patel. I'm the author of Kaikai, which retells the myth of the Ramayan from the perspective of the evil stepmother character. Um, I'm also a law student in my last year of law school based on the east coast of the US. So I kind of wanted to kick off with a discussion about what myth means to you. Um, You had a thread about this on Twitter the other day and you mentioned, um, you know, the popularity of of Greek myth and the fact that we just keep seeing it like crop up time and time again. Um, and, And how many readers just seem to associate the word mythology with Greece, like it's become the default. Um, But there's a whole world of myth to explore out there. So I wanted just to ask you, I mean, what does myth and mythology and mythological retellings, what does it mean to you? Yeah, that's, that's a great question to start off. And I think, so myth to me is this kind of special type of story that is um, ancient, it's been passed down through generations, it's meant to teach us something. Um, And it's one of those stories that, or it's a type of story that's sort of woven into the fabric of a particular culture or identity or in many cases, religion. And so my first exposure to myth was not Greek myth, but Indian myth that I grew up hearing, you know, every day um, from my grandma and from my mom. Um, But Today, especially in books, it does feel a lot like the only myths we hear about are Greek myths, which I think is in part because they are, to a lot of Western texts and Western cultures, part of that fabric and the origin story that we tell ourselves. Um, But that doesn't mean that they're the only origin stories told around the world. 
just interested in thinking about the types of stories that we see and the types, the forms that myths take. I mean, are myths archetypal? Do we see the same characters cropping up time and again? Do we see the same kind of narrative structures, um, you know, cross-culturally? Or have you found that there are some mythologies that are still very culturally, culturally distinct? And maybe this is why so many people default to a single one. I think it's a little bit of both. I, in college, I took um, a class that was called Readings in World Literature, but really it was like foundational myths of world literature um, because we read we read the Mahabharata, which is another Indian epic. We read um, the Odyssey and the Iliad, but we also read, for example, um, Beowulf. We read. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So there's all sorts of stories. And when you read them back to back, you really see that there are all of these repeating motifs, for lack of a better word, that even if the characters and the cultures are different, the kind of journeys that they're going on and the questions that they're asking, which are often along the lines of what is our place in the world? How do we live justly in this world? How do we honor the gods? Um, those questions repeat themselves. And I think that they're very understandable. I do think that um, sometimes the narrative structures or the sort of cultural underpinnings can be pretty different. For example, um, having read the Odyssey, and I'm no scholar of it, but it reads as a much more of a straightforward tale than the Ramayan reads, because the Ramayana is itself set up in a structure where it's a sage telling the story. And then within the story, you get sages telling stories. And then within those stories, etc. it's sort of nested oral tradition within this written product. Um, and so I think that's just one example of ways that it can feel different across different cultures. But I think there a lot of myths are trying to answer the same questions because a lot of people have been trying to answer the same questions about our place in the universe for thousands of years. And we still don't really have answers. I just find that idea of nesting really interesting and how it's, you're totally right to say that it is vastly different from something like, you know, the Odyssey, which is, yeah, there's it plays with time a little bit, but it's pretty linear. Um, and and you know, you're you when you when you go into it, you know it's going to be quite a, a simple story structure. I just love this idea of a kind of like a story within a story and the story until almost to the point where you kind of forget where you began, and yet it it's kind of adding to the you know a, a really rich tapestry of of like narrative tradition. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's it's very present in the Ramayana. It is so present in the Mahabharata, which is sort of the other big Indian epic, that you're reading it and you you truly do forget where you were before. And that's it's kind of the point that everything is so interconnected. Even just like one family's history is so dense and complicated that you can absolutely get lost in it. And I really, I think a lot of it has to do with how oral tradition is used in uh, both as a form of storytelling in writing, but also 
as the main form in which the story has been passed down. Because when you're hearing a story told by somebody to you, they you ask a question and suddenly you're off on a tangent and you never finish the original story. And But now you know something about something that was mentioned once and it's just that's how that's how it works when you tell stories at least that's how it works when I tell stories to my friends so um maybe I'm just revealing that my friends hate me but um I think that it's a tribute to how stories are told differently in different places I wanted to ask something but do obviously I'm not an expert um but from what I understand the Ramayana is from sort of drive-through Hindu mythology and I find that quite interesting, you know, given we're talking about, say, the the plethora of Greek myth retellings, or at least the ones that sort of Western readers would know, where, you know, the ancient Greeks and those myths sort of are a part of a, a long dead religion, whereas Hinduism is incredibly popular. It's still everywhere in India. These myths are taught in schools, not just from a mythological standpoint but from a religious education and and I wondered like if you had any thoughts about what impact that has on the representation and potentially reinterpretations of these mythologies absolutely I think this is something I've I've thought about a lot and I'm, I still think about a lot but it's true that even though the Odyssey and the Ramayana are I'm not, I think the Ramayana might predate the Odyssey, but I wouldn't quote me on that. Um, Hinduism has survived to modern practice or widespread practice. Um, and because of that, this, the Ramayana story has been retold for thousands of years as a religious story. I mean, even today, we, you know, I know the prayers to the different gods who are in the Ramayana. Um, they're extremely important to Hinduism today. And I think, you know, on the one hand, it means that there's a lot to draw from um, because as the religion of Hinduism spread throughout South and Southeast Asia, there are all of these different versions of the story. Um, it, like in Southeast Asia, there's some versions where Ravan, who's the main um, sort of villain in the Ramayana is actually the father of Sita um, and is more of a tragic anti-hero. There's, there's all sorts of variations. And so, first of all, there's a lot more to play with than sort of one text um, that we've just sort of transcribed over and over because it's no longer part of a practiced religion. Um, but it also means that people have some pretty strong feelings about what the story is and what the story means. Um, you know, the term gaikai is sometimes used to derogatorily describe women that people don't like. Um, it's It still just has a lot of cultural relevance and therefore re reverence of Ram and hatred of characters like gaikai. Um, and it means that playing with the myth and trying to change it necessarily means that you're making some sort of statement about religion, whether you want to be or not, which is something that I've tried to be very cognizant of, um, but also means that I can't just be treating this story like it's an ancient story um, and having to think about the modern implications as well. 
it's strange how you say you can't really treat it just as an ancient text, even though that is exactly what it is, but it still has very real connections and, you know, with the contemporary world. So it, it does just make it very different from a lot of the other mythologies that we tend to talk about. Yeah, and the Ramayana in particular, I would say more so than the Mahabharata, has a lot of significance to modern religious movements and modern political movements. Um, and people have based some of their religious and political identities around figures in the epic, um, which means that people have a lot of opinions about what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll put it that way to try to be diplomatic. Obviously, I wouldn't ask for um, any specifics here, but when you were drafting it and plotting it and doing your characters, with that in mind, was there at any point we went, yeah, that's probably not a good idea to do that, or where you reread it and went, you know what, people are going to get upset at that? Yes, there were definitely more so the latter where I was like, oh, people are going to be upset by this. And then I was like, okay, let's see. Um, I didn't really want to change my story or the story that I wanted to tell to satisfy people. And the reason is that um, I've, I'm not necessarily sure that this is everybody's interpretation of Hinduism, but my interpretation is that we can, that questioning is a fundamental part of my religion and that um, many alternative versions or interpretations can exist as we are questioning and trying to probe what is and isn't just or what is and isn't dutiful. And so in writing a version of Kaikai where Kaikai is more heroic and Ram is much more complicated and flawed, I don't think that I am saying anything that is offensive or incorrect or insensitive. I'm merely questioning and trying to probe some of the hard issues in our religion for sort of chiefly the treatment of women and gender divisions. And so even though I knew that I was definitely going to piss people off, um, I didn't want to change the story I wanted to tell for that reason, because I feel very secure in who I am as a Hindu. And so I didn't feel the need to like try to tailor my Hinduism to other people's. This is a really great opportunity to actually ask you a, a bit, you know, just to go a bit deeper into um, women's rights and this division uh, that we see in so many myths, gender divides. Um, and what I really loved about your book is that it just enabled you to really do a like a bit of a deep dive into the actual strata of society and kind of figure out, because I think all too often it, these sorts of quest, social questions are, are very easily glossed over. And they're, especially when the, the heroes of these stories are men, we don't get to ask um, or, or interrogate the structure of society. We just get to sit back and appreciate the hero's glowing journey. Um, so how did you go about approaching such a complicated subject, you know, without, you know, still staying true to the myth, but making it relevant to a 21st century audience too? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that really resonates even today, which is that, you know, when we see these sorts of like big action or fantasy stories, so often 
the women are supporting characters or they're evil. Um, and that is very much the case in the Ramayan. Um, Sita is sort of the heroine, but even she is just, she's kidnapped and then she stays with the person who has kidnapped her until she is rescued. And then later she's actually, this is not in the book and it's at the very end of the Ramayan, but after she returns home with Ram, um, he eventually ends up exiling her because people are asking too many questions about the fact that she had lived in another man's home, never mind that that man was her kidnapper. Um, and so it really just has this overarching view that women are property, um, which at the time they were treated as property, but they're not really given a voice. And that means that when female characters do something that we don't agree with or don't understand, for example, Gaikai um, exiling Ram, we don't have any context. And so it's very easy to assume the worst. And with a character like Gaikai, what got me interested in her in the first place is that we have all of these other snippets of her life in the epic. She rescues her husband in battle. She is supposed to be sort of the most beloved or the most important queen. And so it really makes you go, why would she do something like this? Like this feels very random. And to just say that, oh, she was jealous. Of course, she's a woman. She was jealous. feels very reductive after all of these little pieces. And yet that's still what we get. And so I really wanted to push on that. And all of the women in the Ramayana, I feel, are just not given any chance to grow into people. And so I really wanted to write a bunch of the female characters from the Ramayana and give them actual dialogue and relationships and all of these things that must have been happening off the page because, you know, they weren't just props that only existed when Ram was in the room. Um, I think speaking more broadly to this issue of women's rights, um, I sometimes writing Gaikai have thought like how much have things changed? Um, of course, you know, a lot of things have changed legally, etc. But there are still the same social biases about women and the roles of women that there were thousands of years ago. Um, and so I wanted Gaikai, who's a very independent character and a character who wants a lot of power um, to try to push back on that and try to claim power for herself and in doing so realize that she can have more power if other women have more power um, and sort of vice versa. So it ended up feeling very natural to her character to weave that in but I think it speaks to today's struggle still for women to be taken seriously and truly treated as equal, um, which we're definitely not there yet. <laughs> oh, completely. I also have to say that I really enjoyed uh, how you kept sort of showing the male characters that they have privilege and to, you know, the frustration <laughs> of the female characters thinking like, why can you not see that you have all these privileges that we do not have? Just, uh, yeah, I totally, that resonated with me a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think I was, I was reflecting on this the other day because um, Gaikai does have, 
you know, some of a huge amount of privilege. She's a princess and then a queen. And we never see her question, you know, do I deserve to be princess and then queen? Um, But she perceives very acutely and rightly so the injustices and the difference between her and men. And so I think that being able to tell the story through her eyes where she's a person who very, very deeply feels these sorts of injustices where other people in part as sort of a survival mechanism have learned to not let it affect them so much means that we really feel every time somebody says or does something like that to her. Carrying on with the idea of women and power, quite often in novels, you found that women are kind of given stereotypical male characteristics, such as battle prowess to be able to be considered powerful. What I really liked about your protagonist is while she is a competent warrior she's also got a a much more subtle and traditionally feminine power to influence people using this kind of mystical cord that I thought was really fascinating and the cord is different depending on which person she's influencing so why did you want to combine and explore these disparate forms of power and have her be both battle prowess and this this extra sort of power as well that's a great question and I think I, it, it's very much like you said, you know, I think that it's very, as, as cool as it is to get to see women be warriors and um, sort of claim these male forms of power I, or traditionally male forms of power, I think it's also a little reductive to say that that is how women become powerful, as though there is no power outside of what men have defined is the source of power. And so I wanted Kaikeyi to sort of have both. You know, she really, really wants what the men in her life have. So it's sort of natural that she would um, pursue learning how to fight. But she is also just her own person who is shaped by all of these interactions that she sees at court and all of the ways in which her and other women are treated. So I thought that, you know, giving her this power where she can see her relationships to others and other people's relationships to one another and where she can influence them and play a part um, felt really true to her character and to where she ultimately, I knew, had to end up for the purposes of the myth. Um, And I think even though it is a more subtle form of power, um, it's extremely powerful it ends up getting her a lot more than her ability to fight does and so it was it was really important to me to include that and then towards the end I don't want to like get into spoilers and spoil my own book but so please tell me if you think this is a spoiler but towards the end there's another character who ends up having a similar power to Kaikai and I think watching that play out where Kaiki has justified her whole life, her use of this power, which if you want to characterize it in a negative way is just purely manipulating people and playing with other people's emotions. Um, But she doesn't see it that way. And yet when she sees somebody else using this form of power, all of a sudden she's very defensive and assumes the worst of the other person. And so I think showing that power and then showing both the good and the bad of it was sort of really critical for me to understand who Kaike was as a character. And there were earlier drafts where the power was slightly different and um, wasn't quite used as much. And I feel like I had less of a sense of who Kaike was until I really figured out this 
Bond's magic. I love particularly at the beginning when she she first uses it and then suddenly it goes wrong. And it's been, you know, one because she's been really sort of subtle with her manipulations and like, you know, encouraging the court ladies to think this, that and the other. And then suddenly she pushes it too far and it snaps unbelievably badly. And I thought, wow, that that's a really good sort of examination of, you know, how women do interact um, and how friendships are, but in such a, a visual form. It was brilliant. Thank you. I really struggled with that scene. So it's really nice to know it worked in the end. It did. I was sort of sitting there going, oh, no, what's she done? And like sort of almost as soon as I read it, I was like, no, no, go back. Don't do that. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about something that we see very often when women who have been maligned by myths or famous stories um when they do live alongside men and they do end up having families they there is a tendency for them to fall prey to the evil stepmother character the evil stepmother trope um and we just see it crop up so often in in like you know cross-culturally again in in folk uh fairy tales and, and myths um why do you think this bad mother archetype is is so prevalent um particularly when women are, they have agency or they seek agency or they certainly seek to not be confined by social expectations, you know, of their gender? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really common archetype and it cuts across pretty much every, every kind of myth or folktale that there is. And, you know, I think a huge part of it is that women's role in society since ancient times really has been to be a mother. Like that is oftentimes the root of many of these like sexist stereotypes that persist today. And even a lot of battles over like, you know, pregnant workers rights or things like that is that women are supposed to be mothers and that's supposed to be what they want to do. And that's supposed to be that they're supposed to have the instinct for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We can name a million stereotypes about how women quote unquote should be mothers. And so when women seek to break out of the roles that society has given them, it's in many ways viewed as like rejecting or spurning motherhood because that's what they are supposed to be doing. And so I think that it's just a very common trope because as soon as a woman steps out of line or seems to want a life for herself that's not purely being a mother, all of a sudden there's this belief that that makes them a bad mother. And, you know, it's it's really shitty. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Um, sorry. But it's really terrible. And it's... Uh, you are. Please say whatever you like. <laughs> well, then it's really shitty because, you know, I think about even my own mom who is who is an amazing mom and worked and the comments that she would get from other people and the comments that friends that I have who are working moms get today. And it's like, how dare you do some anything other than be a mom? And I think that's why we see this archetype so much because it's, if you want something more then automatically you are a bad mother. In fiction, it's a bit like in real life. It's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Being a mum who works part-time and childcare is part-time, I I have the best of both worlds, but I also have the most difficult time of trying to hold down a job and trying to childcare. But, you know, I've got friends who work full-time and have been told that they're terrible mothers because, 
they go out to work and I have friends who stay at home and are told the terrible mothers are not providing a good role model because they don't go out to work. So I think within um, fiction, as you as you say, you do, <laughs> you do sort of just have that that sort of either you're a really kind, wonderful person or you're a really bad mother. There's no kind of grey area in between where you're kind of all right. And it's so wild because, I mean, we all obviously know this, but nobody tells the father that, right? Like there are two parents in many households, in my household growing up, and obviously not a person told my dad, why are you traveling and gone all week, every week? Um, But, you know, my mom had a nine to five and how dare she? Yeah, there's really, uh, like last week, I was scrolling through my Instagram and I actually got served an ad, which was some sort of, you know, thing about working from home, you know, get, make money just at your computer. And the ad led with, you don't have to feel guilty about leaving your child in daycare, work from home. And I was like, excuse me, what? I I couldn't believe that marketing like ads was still using such harmful stereotypes and I was like wow we really haven't come that far have we I mean not to get super far afield but multi-level marketing companies are 100% on this shtick of like if you if you don't work from home then you're a bad mother but if you don't make money you're also a bad mother work for us from home and you will be a good mother I think there's an element of bad mothers are an easy monster because the thing about mothers is that they look after you at your most vulnerable time. They are the person that you turn to. It's a bit like, why is Desdemona killed in her bed? Because the bed is a place where you're vulnerable. Therefore, you know, that's where all the monsters hide. That's where you you are at most risk. I think it's the same with mothers that you just easy, quick judgment and go, right, well, this person is supposed to be loving and kind and it's a true abomination. If they're not, um, I'm not sure it hasn't really applied to fathers because generally they should be fulfilling the same role. But you don't get that so much. Although I think certainly in Western society, that's because the fairy tales were written by the Brothers Grimm. So it was the evil stepmother taking the kids out and the the father going, oh, no, it's so terrible. Oh, yay, they're back. I didn't kill them. Yeah, I mean, even in the Ramayan, the the father um, is sort of helpless to do anything and it's uh, he just has all this regret over giving his wife the boons that she won in battle. And it's if you really play it out, it's almost like he has regret for letting her take on this other role because now him and his children are paying the price. I think it's easy to fall into, you know, we, we talk about kick-ass women and women breaking the mold and all of this, you know, women taking their stories to their own hands and men are just so awful. What I really loved about your book is that actually that's not the case at all. And I thought like Kaikia's husband is super nice actually for his time. <laughs> like he he's, he's really understanding, right? <laughs> he's kind of a himbo. <laughs> and like, you know, she's she's comes to him and she says, Look, I, you know, um I, I don't think women's rights are not very good. Like th- this is how I think they could be improved. And, you know, instead of shooting her down in flames, like you'd expect, um, you know, because she she doesn't really get a choice in who she marries. I mean, that's you know, your the reader's almost set up for for conflict, like marital conflict. Um he he's just like, No, I respect you, you've won my respect, you've won my admiration, and I I trust you in your judgment. And that was I think that's so important to see 
the the aspect of like this is a man who is not this is going to lead into my patriarchal beliefs question but um you know it's it's nice to see a man who is not enthralled to those those beliefs um the other side of the coin is that you do have other men, other male identifying people in the book who, who peddle um, these sort of really toxic beliefs, who want to keep women subservient. It was so important to me to write male characters that weren't either susceptible to these beliefs or peddling these misogynistic beliefs. And, you know, there's there's Dashrath, who's her husband. Um, you know, some of her sons fall into that. Even her brother, who, like, does some problematic things ultimately like really I I personally believe loves and respects her um and so I just I you know my little brother is going to read this book like men are going to read this book and many many men are not part of this um as much as it is about like social groups like individuals are individuals who have their own power and many individuals with power choose to share it or choose to be good people. And so I didn't want to write a book that was like, men are evil and women are good because it feels just so reductive. Absolutely. Um, and what I thought was was even more interesting than just, you know, having a man, you know, shoving his patriarchal beliefs down women's throats is that how those beliefs spread because it's very subtle and it's very insidious and it's re- it was actually very heartbreaking to read because you you know that these boys are raised by wise loving mothers who are all outspoken and they want their sons to understand that women should be standing on equal ground with men and that's how that's how they are raised and yet this kind of like insidious um toxic belief like still ends up as you were saying it still ends up poisoning some of their minds and I it's that made me think about you know how boys hang out together and these homosocial bonds that they forge at an early age and if somebody with great um influence uh you know like in in your case a, a religious figure who is you know you're supposed to see this person as a scholar, as as wise, as someone who knows the ways of the world. You know, if a person like that gets hold of a group of boys, um, you know, even though they've been raised in uh, a feminist household, um, they still have this pr- propensity to fall prey to this damaging worldview. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of how I was thinking about that and wrote that was influenced by a lot of um, research and discussion of how young men are quote unquote radicalized today, which is that a lot of young men are, you know, raised in loving households by, with, you know, good role models um, of both genders or multiple genders. And, um, you know, they are not exposed to this at school, but they're exposed to this on the internet. Um, You know, they have questions. Every young person has questions about who they are, what they're meant to do, you know, you, everyone has moments where they feel vulnerable. And if the answers as to how to deal with that vulnerability are more tempting from these other sources where you might have formed strong bonds, then maybe you're not going to be getting the answers at home. Um, and I think that displaying that that is how it happens, that just because you have, you know, parents who don't subscribe to these beliefs that we're safe, I, 
you know, I think that's wrong. And I wanted to show that. And I think that religion is a big way even today where people are exposed to these beliefs because a lot of religious teachings of all religions, and I really don't want to generalize about Hinduism because growing up in a majority Christian country, I've really seen this in many other religions, um, that, you know, religions often preach that men are the heads of the household. They have to be strong. They cannot be vulnerable. And it sort of gives young people an answer like, oh, I feel bad about being vulnerable because I should not be vulnerable. And that's obviously the wrong answer. Um, But it feels very tempting, especially to a young person. And so I think that that more than anything is what inspired sort of the way that beliefs are transmitted in Kaikei. That was a good answer. (laughs) Everyone stunned into silence. You represent Kaikei's identity as as ace, so asexual, and it was really, really great to see. But that's so rare in myths to see an asexual character. You know, I I can't remember the last time I saw that. So we just wanted to know, like, how does this aspect of herself shape her decisions, especially as she knows she must become a wife and a mother? Yeah, so I feel like I have many answers to this question. Um, in, in regards to how it shapes her, I think that, uh, and I, we talked about this a bit earlier, but women so often, especially like quote unquote evil women, so often fall into these archetypes of either they are this like, you know, seductress who's too comfortable in her own sexuality and is like using her beauty for evil ends, or they sort of fall into this like old crone, like nobody wants her and that's why she's bitter and like jilted and whatnot. And I think that I really wanted Gaike's character to break out of that. Like a woman's options should not be to be a seductress or to be ugly, um, which often feels like how it's portrayed in the myths. And so the fact that Gaike just doesn't think about sex and sexual relationships um, really first of all, frees her to have other kinds of relationships with people. Her relationship with her husband, I think, is really important to her and really important to the story. But it's it's a friendship based on, you know, mutual trust and respect and not more than that. But it also sort of frees her from these stereotypes because very much so in um, most portrayals of the Ramayana, Gaike is portrayed by this, like, slightly older but very beautiful, you know, very... Um, sensuous woman who's definitely meant to play the seductress archetype and so you know I wanted her to to break out of that and to break out of those categories that are in myth and then I think you know more broadly first of all I wanted to see more ace representation um, because I think that's really lacking in books generally not just myth retellings but I also think that you know asexuality is just very hidden as a sexuality. And so, you know, mythological characters we might not think of as ace might actually be. Um, Someone I think about this a lot is Atalanta, um, the Greek heroine, the runner. Um, She like declares she doesn't want to marry and eventually she's tricked into marriage. And then we're told that she like is happy with her husband. But to me, it's like, maybe she just doesn't want to marry. Like maybe she's not into the idea, maybe she's ace, maybe she's arrow, um, like compulsory sexuality 
is is really her enemy here, not necessarily that she is just yet to find the right man. And I think a lot of characters, both men and women in myth who, you know, claim that they're never going to marry or claim that they have no interest in marrying. Um, the spin in the myth is always that they haven't met the right person or it's a character flaw. But I think that um, from the lens of modernity, it's also possible to say that they're just, that's truly something that they don't want and that's okay. I don't know why we don't see more of it. Is it because, well, I don't know. I feel like you should answer this question, but I'm I'm just, it's it's just such an interesting thing because I like what Meg was saying and what you were saying as well. It's not just myth. Um, It just doesn't seem to be portrayed on the page or actually on screen either. Yeah, that's, it's very true. And I mean, I have my theory, which is that people love romance and romance sells and, I love romance. I am sitting here and I have three romance books on my desk that I'm meaning to get through. <laughs> like, um, But even in stories that aren't about romance, there's often a romantic subplot. Um, you know, in a lot of fantasy books, there's some, like, or any other genre besides romance, there's often a strong romantic subplot. And so, um, first of all, you know, being, being alloromantic, that's the term, and being allosexual are two different things. You know, having romantic atta- attraction, having sexual attraction are sort of separated. Um, but I think that people, th- there's this sort of line that's like romance leads to sexual attraction. And if we want romance, then we're going to have sexual attraction. And now all of a sudden we don't have ace characters. Um, and I, I do think that's something that's changing. You know, I've seen a lot more, especially YA books that had ace characters and, and a lot of them... Um, it's just, it's like an adventure story and like the characters, why would they even be thinking about that? Um, and so I think that hopefully that's going to change. And I read a wonderful book by, um, I believe her name is Angela Chan called Ace. And that talked a lot about a lot of these things that I highly recommend. Um, but I think, I think that has something to do with it, that romance is very powerful. Um, most stories are in some way about love and it's hard for us to think about or write stories about love that isn't romantic even though that there's so many other extremely important types of love you know love between friends love between families you know parents siblings um romantic love is i think very exciting and very popular i get what you mean about you know because obviously if you're you're asexual you can still be romantic and but this this kind of idea that like if if you have a, a romantic you know a, a love romance that doesn't kind of have that culmination that doesn't have the uh, get off um, <laughs> then somehow it, it just doesn't feel completed which is I think is also really sad and and. A, a damning indictment of how we view sex as well in that it's some sort of like end game um <laughs> but yeah it's it's yeah. it's really sad i i don't i feel like i've made every conversation i've had in the past week about bridgerton and i'm doing it again um which is that i love the show bridgerton um it's romance and i saw a lot of comments on the interwebs about how people were disappointed that there's a lot less sex and the main couple doesn't even kiss until almost the end of the season. And 
to me, I loved watching the show. I loved watching them catch feelings for each other and develop this like strong bond and like over their similarities and their duties and really fall in love. And I wasn't feeling disappointed that we weren't getting that culmination. And yet a lot of people, I think, found it hard to believe that these characters were falling in love until they started making out. And I think that's like, it's an illustration of exactly that, Um, which is that until there's some physical action, um, I think a lot of times people are disappointed or feel like they can't really believe that there is some emotional action going on. You see, I don't know, because when I was a kid, I used to love watching The X-Files and also um, Steed and Mrs. Peel, The Avengers. And for me, it was never really about the sex and it was never really about sort of, will they, won't they? It was just fun to watch the flirting and to, to wonder. And, you know, I remember watching Lucifer a couple of years back and stopping at the point where Lucifer and the woman he's after kiss. And I'm like, well, there's nothing more to watch now. He's kind of gone. What's where's the fun? Um, so I think you're right. I think that romance is a really good element in it, but I don't necessarily think that certainly for me personally, you know, seeing it all the way to completion is what I want. And in some cases, that actually turns me completely off, and I'd rather just go back to the flirting. Absolutely. I mean, I love I love the flirting. I I live for the flirting, um, and that's what I'm looking for in most shows where I'm invested in the main couple. Um, but I just. I feel like this this is like a perennial debate, but I see people or even my friends who are like, I don't like this romance because it has fade to black or, you know, the main couple doesn't have sex by the end of it. And, you know, I think people are looking for different things. Um, but I think that there is definitely a trend towards wanting that physical culmination, which I think is part of the reason why or people feel like it's hard to include ace characters. Then we do have the enduring uh, legacy of Jane Austen when that is all about the flirting and there's nobody gets off in that except maybe those of us who watch a bit too much Colin Firth in the lake. <laughs> Dragging the tone down. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> we love you for it. Well, I, I showed that to, to my daughter um, when it was pandemic because she was, you know, bored and at home and bless her, she was actually reading the Jane Austens. And she was like, is that the famous scene, mummy? And I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, what do you think of it? She's like, well, he's okay, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's, that's, under, that, that's the right direction. You're only 10. There's still time. She'll see the light eventually. <laughs> well, Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Vaishnav. It was really nice to talk to you. And I'm really excited about your book going out into the world um, and for more people to meet your amazing ace queen. Thank you. I'm I'm very excited. It's so soon now. Um, by the time this episode comes out, even sooner. But very excited. So thank you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.